Shut up and sit down. I have a malicious curiosity and I do things in the lab that might get me arrested if I actually tried them on the streets. That virus you're always talking about, right? The one that could uh, rip off the company for a bunch of money. Well, how does it work? Cybercrime is becoming everything in crime. Welcome to the gig. Your data belongs to us now. What are you going to do? In this episode of the gig, we talk to Chai and creator of HaveIBeenFormed.com to find out what can be done to protect oneself. So continue listening, if you dare. Hey Leon, how are you? Pretty good, how are you Troy? Good, and hey, I am so sorry for continually shuffling this meeting. Not my intention at all. No worries. You're a busy man, my friend. It has been a bit of a crazy time. <laughs> busy fighting cybercrime, I presume. Well, you know what? There's always that, but we're also uh, moving house into state. Ah. And uh, that brings with it a whole bunch of stuff to do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so here we are. Well, uh, hey, I appreciate uh, you taking the time out to chat with us. So Troy Hunt is an industry thought leader in the information security space, a Microsoft MVP for developer security, and the creator of HaveIBeenPawned.com. He's been uh, featured in Forbes, Time Magazine, Mashable, PC World, ZDNet. The list goes on, and we're uh, definitely delighted to have him on the gig. I came across another Troy Hunt. He's actually a New Zealander who's apparently an accomplished rock and blues musician, but uh, alas, not an accomplished security professional. Because I was like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> not that. How about that? Okay, so I know you're a avid snowboarder and windsurfer. Uh, any any musical talent to speak of? Or? Nope. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I'm a, I'm a very active sort of guy. i got to get out there and do something. Favorite album of all time? Favorite album? Um... <clears throat> Maybe the Black Album from Metallica, Heavy Metal. A perennial, yeah, uh, a perennial favorite. What are we in? We're like 20 plus years in, mate. Oh, gee, 25 years in almost. Jeez. Um, yeah, but that one just still rocks. Enter Sandman. That's, that's long. Always, uh, <laughs> at any rate, thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. We can start out tracing our guests' roots. Um, how did you get started in security? Like, Was there a particular event or incident that led you down this path? Look, I think I've always had a bit of an interest because to me, security is very often like when you're a kid and you just take something apart and you see how you can make it better or do something it's not meant to do. So I've always had a bit of a fascination with that. And I think uh, software developers in general uh, have a bit of a fascination with that. Right. But they they probably don't normally kind of put the black hat on, if you like, and think about things from, from a, an offensive perspective. But I, I guess the point for me that really sort of started to turn things around is I was working in, a, in an architecture role uh, at Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, obviously a a large multinational, and I would often be working with teams building software products that would then go off to a security team. The security team would look at them and they'd come back to the developers and they'd say, you've got XSS and you're missing XFO and you've got CSRF problems. And the developers are just looking at these acronyms going, I have no <laughs> idea what you were right. talking about. <laughs> and I started doing a lot of writing that was designed to try and translate these security paradigms into things that software developers could understand. Right. Because my view is that unless the developers really get to grips with this and they really understand uh, why the security is important, and that really understands under, or that really involves rather understanding how to break the the constructs they're working with, 
unless they can do that, they really don't buy into it. That, to me, was really the turning point, trying to make that more consumable to developers. Especially in this day and age, it, it does seem like that is a, uh, a prerequisite or at least essential skill set of developers is that they, they do have a good handle on security, being that, you know, applications can be so easily compromised these days. Well, you know, I, I think it's an implicit expectation of developers. So what I mean by that is that people will ask for an application to be built and they will talk about features. And very often they won't talk about explicit security requirements in the same way as they very often won't talk about uh, explicit performance requirements. Well, I mean, of, of course it's going to be fast and secure, right? I mean, that's that's what software is. You guys will just do that, won't you? Right. And, yeah, it really hasn't sort of been elevated to the perspective that it, that it needs to in terms of being called out very explicitly about we expect you to not have uh, SQL injection risks or cross-site scripting risks or any of these other things. So I, I think that that is one of, the, one of the big problems we have, that it is an implicit expectation. Mm -hmm. Did you start out as a developer or were you more on the, the admin side or what was, uh, what was your um, area of expertise, I guess, when it comes to technology? Oh, yeah. No, look, I was very, um, very central developer. So, you know, to me, it was all about building software. And that was something I did for many years before sort of doing the architecture role, which was, I guess, more about helping people figure out how to build software. So that's always been where I've come from. Uh, and even now, I still build a lot of software because uh, I like it. I like creating stuff. Uh, but I, I think that security offers uh, an opportunity to be a good complement to that. Are there any specific concerns to be had if you're using a Microsoft stack, nuances or gotchas when it comes to building, let's say, for instance, applications in Azure versus doing something on you know, Amazon AWS or any kind of Microsoft-specific concerns that people should have? Look, I think the way of looking at it is that we can kind of break this down into two tiers. So we, we can talk about uh, generic threats. So we can talk about things like cross-site scripting, for example. So right. you, you provide input to a system and the system reflects that input and does that mean an attack could provide potentially malicious input that runs script in the, in the client. Right. And that is a paradigm which then prevails across all the web technology stacks. The, the question then is what are idiosyncrasies between those stacks in terms of what might be specific risks and also what might be specific defenses. So for something like ASP.NET, uh, we'd say, okay, if you're going to build ASP.NET and you build web forms, there are certain controls that will automatically uh, encode your output and there are other ones that won't. If you're building MVC, well, there are certain helpers that will uh, encode your output. In fact, just about everything encodes by default. But there is this other thing that won't and that could leave you at risk of an attack. So th there's definitely a need to understand the specific paradigms within the program language of choice because a lot of the time you get security implicitly in frameworks as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I'm really conscious of is that you need to understand how that works. And that differs enormously by platform. So, for example, if you are building software with Visual Studio 2010, and even though that's five years ago and we're several editions further on now, there are still many people that are. Mm -hmm. If you're building with 2010 and you start a brand new application and you use the default implementation to store credentials, you're storing credentials in a very, very weak way, which is almost no better than plain text. Right. And you could be doing things the way the framework wants you to do it. But because time's moved on and hashing algorithms that were considered okay before are now not, uh, you know, you've, you've got to understand that. So you have to get the 
I guess, really understand the implementation within the framework. Yeah, and it does seem like as applications are developed and they're kind of retrofitted and, and improved upon over time, there's kind of like geologic layers that get built up, vulnerabilities get tucked in between. What's the best way to go about assessing you know, an application's security posture? Uh, you mean other than watching my courses first? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I think that the, the place where all of this begins is developers having competency. So, you know, they have got to understand what these very well-known attack vectors are. They've got to understand how to exploit, say, SQL injection risk. And then once they understand that, when it comes to assessing the risk posture of an application, they're going to understand the patterns to look for. Now, there are lots of tools that can help you do this. So there are some very good dynamic analysis tools where you just plug in the URL of your application and it goes away and crawls it and it finds all sorts of risks. So they're a very good start. Okay. Uh, some of them cost a bit of money. There are other tools that are freely available that might take a little bit more work. But the thing with all of these is that you still want to understand what they're doing, what the risk is they're exploiting and what the impact of someone actually executing attack against that risk might be. Haveibeenpawned.com. I must admit, I ran all my email addresses through that. I did have one particular email address that I don't use anymore, but um, it was opened, you know, probably like about a decade ago. And uh, I ran that through and it popped up. It had been pawned or it had been hacked. Yeah. So that kind of freaked me out a little bit. But rest assured, friends and family, I haven't been using it. <laughs> but um, what floored me was that, you know, in a lot of these cases, you're not even aware that your email and your credentials are floating out there on some public site. What was the impetus for building HaveIBeenPawned.com? Well, you know, a funny story related to that, and then I'll tell you the background. Someone uh, just the other day said to me, I was in the Adobe bridge, but I've never had an account on Adobe. I don't understand how I got in there. And I, I sort of said, well, did you ever use Dreamweaver? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, Dreamweaver was Macromedia, and Adobe bought Macromedia. Right. So you had a presence in one of these assets, which was then bought by this larger conglomerate. And, you know, your account was rolled in, and now you are uh, in the Adobe data breach. So it's, it's just interesting how your data ends up in all of these different places. Yeah. And to your question, that was part of the impetus. So I was doing a lot of analysis across data breaches, uh, looking at, at trends. So things like... Uh, isn't it curious that you have these people in the Adobe data breach who are also in the Gorka data breach and we've got Adobe uh, badly encrypted passwords but encrypted all the same, yeah. uh, not even hashed but <laughs> oddly enough encrypted, and we've got plain text password hints and then in this other data breach we've actually got plain text passwords and then you can join them up and you can look at interesting things. Right. And I, I thought, isn't it curious? And I wonder how many people realize how much of a footprint they've left behind, not due to things like presences on social media sites. I think everybody knows they leave footprints there. Right. But in data breaches with with information that you expect to be kept private and certainly not disclosed publicly which is actually now out there as part of very often millions of other people in one of these incidents. So that, that sort of got me thinking that this would be a really interesting project uh, to stand up and make it easy for people to assess their risk. And then as things evolved, it just sort of developed from there. Wouldn't it be interesting if people could be notified if they appeared in another breach and see, you know, another feature for that? And it, it just kept rolling. 
um, one point that you mentioned I think is particularly distressing is that it feels like what we're seeing is this domino effect where we use our email addresses to sign up for other services using similar credentials or similar like past hints, reminders, etc. In essence, sort of daisy chaining these dependencies together that have catastrophic results when prominent websites are breached like you know, Adobe. Is there any hope in sight? I mean, what's what is the uh, what's the recourse? I mean, do we move towards a model where we don't use our email addresses for signing up for like Facebook? Well, I guess part of the reality of it is we're going to have presences on all these online services in part because convenience, and, and let's face it, online services can be enormously convenient, in part because you don't have a choice in many cases. You will have a presence in various online systems if you want to be a member of society. Um, and really, the, I think where we're getting to is coming to more of the realisation that when something is digitised, it it can be distributed very broadly, very quickly. And I, I'm in sort of two minds about this because it can often be construed as victim blaming as well. But if we take an example, it is it is probably not wise to take naked photos of yourself, uh, <laughs> assuming you are of the mindset that you don't want other people to see it. Right. Now, whilst I fully support the right for people to, to take naked photos of themselves, you must also acknowledge that once something is digitised, it can get very, very easily, broadly distributed. Mm-hmm. So you need to sort of make a bit of a risk assessment on that, regardless of whether it's wrong or right, you've got to sort of go, hey, would I be okay this gets distributed? Mm-hmm. And I think that once you start to take that mindset, then you can sort of go down the paths of saying, okay, if I really do want to digitise it, should I anonymise my identity? And so a good case in point was Ashley Madison. Uh, if you want to go onto Ashley Madison and cheat on your wife, you probably don't want to use your email address, not just your personal email address, but your work email address either. So go and use uh, another service. Go and create uh, a Gmail account that doesn't have your name in it. Uh, don't pay for it with your credit card. You know, do things to anonymize your identity. Right. Uh, and in fact, that's something I've got in draft at the moment that I'm writing up because I, I think people should have the right to have an anonymous presence on sites like that. But you have to work on the assumption that whatever you put in there may be made public at some time. Right. If you plan on cheating on your spouse, use an alias. Probably do not use an online, don't use a website that specifically uh, is for that purpose. As it, Ashley Madison is obviously just one of the many data breaches that have occurred over the past few months. And I think we're seeing the escalation. Um, mm-hmm. But the OPM breach in, in the United States uh, with the government, I mean, that's on a whole nother scale in terms of severity. I mean, they're saying like fingerprints, friends of friends, people interviewing for jobs at the CIA, you know, their, their stuff is out on the open now. On one hand, we do give control to these uh, entities and we trust that they can secure and protect our information. Where are things moving in terms of information security? Are people going to start kind of pulling back? Are they going to get smarter? What is the new normal? Well, I think, first of all, OPM is a really interesting one because that's a good example of where this was not necessarily a conscious decision by individuals to opt in to a service like Ashley Madison. This was, they are part of the government and this is how the government manages their records. Uh, You will be digitised. That is just part of modern life, regardless of whether you want to be or not. Right. So that, that's kind of the first thing, and, and that's also not an option of you saying, hey, I'm, I'm just going to be an OPM under an alias, and I'm going to use a VPN. <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. Right. I, I think the um, it, it's interesting in terms of the new normal, and it, it depends on the perspective you're coming from. So for individuals, uh, I think that the new normal should be the assumption that your data will be made public. Again, rightly or wrongly, that's that needs to be the assumption. 
the, the hesitation I have is that big events like Ashley Madison, whilst impactful, there is undoubtedly a perception there that, hey, this was a site for people to cheat on, cheat on their spouses. Uh, and I'm not cheating on my spouse. So, you know, maybe this is not something I really need to worry about. Mm -hmm. And I suspect that gets glossed over. One of the other things that, that's very interesting now is that we're sort of in this era where we have uh, adults who have never known a time without the internet. So, yeah, for me, I was, uh, yeah, I was just reaching adult years as the internet came along and, and that has sort of been something that I've, I've, uh, I've grown through adulthood with and I've seen the way uh, data and privacy online has changed. For so many people, there has never been a time where your information hasn't been online and much of your life hasn't been public, right. uh, particularly via social. And I strongly feel that they have a very different social tolerance to sharing information. So as that younger generation becomes more proliferant and the, the, the older guys sort of move on, uh, I, I think that generally as a society, our tolerance for sharing information broadly increases and our concern about this information being disclosed and being shared with others uh, decreases. Now, maybe that's just going to be a, a changing fact of life where we all just become a little bit less worried as a collective uh, about this information. But I suspect it's going to go uh, on the one hand that way and on the other hand, those who are providing the services are obviously very conscious that these incidents do keep reappearing. And we are seeing good steps forward in security and privacy as well. I mean, things like multi-factor authentication is, mm -hmm. is a great example. We're seeing uh, the ubiquity of that across large services these days. And, and even just a few years ago, that, that really was a pretty rare thing. Right. So I, I think we're, we're both becoming more tolerant and in some ways more secure. But then the other dimension is that we have even more and more things that are connected online mm -hmm. and they're collecting even more and more data i've got one permanently stripped up to my wrist now <laughs> it, it knows where i've been and what i've been doing and when i sleep yes uh so it has all of that information and it's it's storing that and inevitably there will be incidents where that sort of information is disclosed publicly right so it, it is a very interesting multifaceted problem so like i mentioned i, I went to uh i went to have i been and uh an email address of mine indeed came up as being hacked what i did was i just went in there and i just changed the password um it seemed most sensible to me i know you had an faq i didn't read it yet but um <laughs> you know what action should people take if indeed they you know they go to have and they find that they've they've been pawned what what can be done at that point yeah so look i, I give this sort of very generic vague advice which unfortunately is a bit of a necessity which which effectively says uh you know consider the consider the risk that this exposed data may have for you and, and for each one of these breach incidents it tells you what classes of data uh, so for example if it is just your email address and your password then you probably want to go and change your password and you want to be conscious that your association with that site is is now public uh, so, for example, with Ashley Madison, I know we keep coming back to this, but it's mm -hmm. such a big event. There are people getting blackmail emails. Right. So it's worthwhile being aware before you get the blackmail email that you were actually in that incident. Right. Now, with other classes of, of data breach, you might want to look at, um, should I be worried about my credit card? Uh, so was that possibly exposed? And the interesting thing with credit cards as well is that very often what and, and we'll take something like uh, Patreon, for example, compromised right. the other day. Uh, you might find that the organization was PCI compliant, so that is they stored payment card information in a secure fashion. They didn't have the entire card number there, but they might have had the, the last four digits of the card, right. which may not sound too bad, 
except for the fact that the last four digits of your card are often used as a verification channel for other services. That's right. <laughs> so we've seen incidents in the past with the likes of GoDaddy being socially engineered by people providing the legitimate last four digits of someone's card number and then taking over their account. Right. In terms of credit card numbers, and let's say you, know, you, you have your credit card number stolen, you can get another credit card. Their fingerprints are stolen. Yeah, that, they're, they're that painful effect, to reset. <laughs> <laughs> you get hacked once and you're essentially dead in the water. Um, in terms of those types of data breaches, is there any, any recourse in those situations? or? Well, biometrics is interesting because it, it's a question of what has actually been breached. And then, you know, we, we say fingerprints, but are we talking about um, hashes of a particular form of biometric data? Mm -hmm. uh, and then, for example, if, if that is the case, how can that then be reused? I mean, you, you can't take that, that raw biometric data uh, and, and then just plug it into my PC and, and log in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what is the process of actually reproducing the biometric attribute? You know, could you go and reproduce a nice silicon mold uh, if you could, you know, if you could use that channel? Right. And, and then, of course, we, we very often find that biometric attributes, um, you know, they do require physical access to other things as well. So it's, it, it's not quite a, a sort of game over. But, of course, the concern there is that biometric attributes aren't really uh, cyclable like right. a password is as well. Right. So it's, it's very interesting that these are enormously convenient mechanisms. I love using Touch ID mm -hmm. on my I.O. S devices, for example, yeah. uh, but of course we need to make sure that not only uh, are the systems that that we build resilient to attacks against that information, but the systems that we build are resilient to if someone has obtained that information from other sources. Right. I was watching a um, a YouTube video of yours, and I saw you do something scary. Um, well, I saw you do many scary things. <laughs> One that was particularly interesting, you did some XSS thing, put some commands in, and essentially you, know, you were routed to Google. You hit back and you, and you go back to Google. My question is, for a lot of these you know, websites that are juggling multiple ad networks or pulling in different code bases from different sites, effectively opens up many attack vectors, does it not? Yeah, so the, the bit I, I did on ads the other day, in fact, it was a friend of mine who, who did the video where um, <laughs> he, he sent me this message. And look, there, there are a few people I would have preferred to have got this message from, if I'm honest. But he said, um, hey, your, your blog, your website has got uh, a cross-site scripting vulnerability. And I was like, what do you mean? It runs on Google Blogger. You know, I don't actually write any code uh, on there. And I'm pretty sure that Blogger themselves don't have an XSS risk. But uh, I have ads on my blog. And they're, in theory, they are meant to be technology ads that are tastefully related to the content that is on the page. But the problem with ad networks is that they resell ad space. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they will resell it to uh, organizations of less repute, shall we say. Right. And sometimes there's not always the due diligence of the security controls of those organizations. Right. And the bottom line is the way most ads tend to work today, and it's really a fundamental flaw in the ad system, is that they put an iframe on the page. Right. And you put the iframe on the page and then someone else gets to run their page in your site. So even though an ad looks like an image with a hyperlink, which is what it really should be, right. they are actually running code on your site. So when you put an ad on your site, you're normally inviting someone else into your site and giving them the ability to execute things within the context of your site. So in this particular case, uh, what this friend of mine showed me is that he was able to pass a query string uh, just to the, to the, basically to the root of my website which would then be read by the ad network. And the ad network needs to know the address you're on. That's, that's fine. 
but they then reflect that in the response of the page which sits inside the iframe and they weren't properly sanitizing the input or, or output encoding their, their response. And what that meant was he got to add a piece of script to my URL and basically just redirect people who came to the site. Mm -hmm. And this, this was a shortcoming on the ad network, nothing to do with anything that I had done wrong other than maybe choosing the wrong ad network. Right. And, and, and you know, here we are. And this is the nature of the web today too because so many of these sites tend to be mashups of all these other services. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got the ad network. I run Google Analytics like every second other website. They run code in your site. I have Discuss for comments. They run code in your site. Right. And your risk footprint ends up extending to whatever it is that they put on your site. Are there emerging technologies on the horizon that, that will um, kind of help to mitigate these threats or...? Look, I, th I think that there is, there's good and bad sides to, to the end of the tunnel, if you like. So some of the things that are happening is that we are getting much more resilient frameworks. So we, we touched on ASP.NET the other day, or, or a little bit earlier on, which is where I spend most of my time. Uh, so for example, now when we use ASP.NET MVC, we get output encoding by default. So your risk of XSS uh, goes way down. So that's a great thing. Right. Most people these days are connecting to databases using uh, object relational mappers, which will automatically uh, parameterize your SQL statements and defend against SQL injection. So those sort of things are great and they happen implicitly. Mm -hmm. I, I guess the risk is that inevitably what you do is you move the attack surface to somewhere else when you do that. So attackers might become more focused on, say, social engineering. Uh, we know that, that people are a very, very weak link in the chain. Right. Uh, obviously, mobile is enormously popular now. So, you know, there are attacks now that are starting to become more mobile-centric. Not always just attacks either. Sometimes just dark patterns of the way content is advertised or information is pushed to people. Right. So we, we are improving things, but it does also push people in other directions, particularly towards the, uh, the emergent technologies, pushes attackers towards these other directions. <laughs> Are there any other resources that, uh, that we can look forward to that you're working on or that you're building? Well, look, I'm, yeah, I'm still producing a lot of Pluralsight content. So mm -hmm. I am, uh, I'm working through this Certified Ethical Hacker series uh, with another author as well. We've got 20 courses to write, wow. uh, which I'm, I'm now at about the halfway mark, fortunately. But there's a lot of stuff there, and that will, that will take me into the start of 2016, so that will keep me very busy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm all over the world <laughs> in the next <laughs> few months as well, so... I'll be in the US in, in late October in, in a few different places there and I'll, I'll be in um, the UK for several weeks at the start of Jan as well doing a bunch of talks and workshops and things. Uh, and somewhere in between there I'll, I'll continue to be building stuff on Have I Been Pwned and blogging and, and doing all the usual stuff. Fantastic. Well, if you're ever in the Bay Area, be sure to stop by Script Rock, actually a company founded by a couple of fellow Aussies. I was there a few weeks ago. What was, what was my invite then? Yeah. <laughs> Where can people go to read more about your articles and the stuff uh, the stuff you're working on? Well, there's, there's TroyHunt.com, which okay. has got all the articles on it, and I'm on Twitter as Troy Hunt as well. And um, Twitter tends to lead to everything. All roads lead to Twitter. Troy, again, thanks for taking the time out to chat with us. And uh, we're very thankful for resources like Have I Been Pond that you put out there to the general public. Cool. Thank you very much. And uh, thanks for the invite to come on the show, too. Absolutely. Talk to you later. See you later. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. And special thanks to Troy Hunt for joining us on the gig. For more episodes, please visit scriptrock.com and have a safe Hallows Eve because we will be watching and waiting. <laughs>